thank you for downloading this podcast. If you'd like to put your thinking cap on every now and again, you could be the next brain of 702 with Discam. Get to 702.co.za for more information. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. 25 minutes to 10 o'clock. Thank you very much for joining us. Yes, our lines are open for you. Give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. What do you want to ask the Naked Scientist this morning? Remember, you can also send us your SMSs and your emails. We always prefer that you call because we can deal with your question right there and then. So our lines are open for you. You can try your luck. Chris, good morning. Hey, good morning. Lovely. Now, you've got an interesting story about two million eggs. Where do they go? (laughs) Women's eggs. (laughs) Yeah, there was a really interesting paper in the journal Science Translational Medicine last week. It was by researchers in New York. And they were asking that very question. When a, a baby develops inside its mother, baby girl, then there are more than a million eggs developing in the ovary. When that baby is born, it's born with about a million eggs. But then over its lifetime, it only uses about 500 or so of those eggs. 500, Mm. just 500. But by the age of 50, all the ovary eggs are gone. Mm. And menopause ensues. So why do you have a million? What happens to all the others? Why only use 500? And what this group of researchers noticed is that in women who have a gene problem with a gene called BRCA, B-R-C-A, which is linked to a number of familial breast cancers, in other words, people who develop breast cancer at a very young age in their family, they noticed that these individuals are also much more likely than average to have an early menopause and that when they give them drugs to stimulate the ovary to collect eggs, for instance, if they're going to have chemotherapy for breast cancer, that their ovaries don't respond as well as other people do. And so they thought, is there something in this gene? What does it do? How could that be tied up with eggs disappearing from the ovary? And BRCA, B-R-C-A, the gene that causes breast cancer, actually is a DNA repairing enzyme. It puts broken bits of DNA back together. And so what this group wondered was, well, are the eggs in the ovary slowly getting damaged to their DNA and the damage to the DNA destroys the eggs over time? So they do this really nice series of experiments in both mice and in human eggs showing that as a woman ages, her eggs accumulate more damage to their DNA and the levels of these repairing enzymes, including this BRCA gene, even in healthy people, go down and as a result, the increase in DNA damage goes up and over time the eggs become inviolable and they disappear and for some reason beyond the age of 35 this process accelerates enormously which is where all the eggs go and understanding this process now gives us a better insight into how to manage it how to warn people that they might be at risk of it happening more quickly how to slow it down and also therefore how to enable people to plan their family better into an older age, and maybe even, as the researchers say, extend the time at which the menopause occurs naturally. Mm. And, uh, Chris, I have a follow-up question. Is there a scientific way of improving egg quality? I see there's also an email here from Simone. She wants to know exactly the same question. If a woman is born with uh, poor quality eggs, and uh, I'm sure there's a scientific uh, name for that, I don't know, is there a way of, of boosting them, she wants to know? Well, the quality of the egg is largely down to the quality of its genetic material and the chemicals that are in the egg. So one of the things that this paper I just described deals with is the genetic material. And this is most of the game here. And so if we can understand how eggs age 
why some eggs don't age as well as others and other eggs do much better, then we'd be in a position to give people like Simone better information about the quality of their eggs because rather than having to go into the woman's ovary and take out some eggs and look at them, what researchers are trying to do are to find what we call biomarkers, so chemicals washing around in the bloodstream which may not even be connected to the ovary but their levels can be used to signal the sort of pattern of changes which will be happening all around the body but also in the ovary so you can link a chemical that's easy to measure because it's in the blood or even in saliva for example with what is going on in your ovaries and you can use one as a measure of the fitness of the other and that's what also they begin to touch on in this paper all right let's go straight to the lines then mike are you ready with your question mike from midrand good morning welcome good morning mm. i'd like to know from the scientists why does the smell of the burned oil of a diesel engine is rather nice and the burned oil of a damaged petrol engine kind of stinks would you know mm. i quite like diesel smell because ah, uh, <laughs> in, in in low concentrations but it's interesting in recent years and largely in big cities, diesel doesn't smell like diesel anymore when it burns because the oil companies have taken a lot of the sulphur out. So cheap and nasty diesel that you can still buy and put in your tractor and in your boats and things, that still does smell like diesel. But the nice stuff that you buy to drive in your really fancy car around town now, that diesel does not burn and smell like diesel anymore. It's got other things in it. It's desulfurized, so it does have quite a different flavor. And if you burn bio-diesel, which is diesel made from either rape methyl ester, maybe contains 15 to 20% of that, or from chip fat, so when people have finished frying up their chips and fried food in, in the restaurant, you can turn that oil into diesel. There's various ways of doing that. It's called biodiesel. When that burns, it smells like a fish and chip shop. So mm. there's a whole range of different smells there. Uh, some people like it, some people don't. The oily smell that you get when an engine is clapped out, what's actually happening there is that the oil that lubricates the engine and sits in the sump at the bottom is pumped around the engine through fine drillings through the engine casing and sprayed onto the moving parts of the engine, including the cylinder bores. So as the piston goes up and down, the oil is lubricating the piston against the bore. And when an engine gets knackered, then instead of the oil being scraped off by what are called oil control rings on the piston as it goes down, some of the oil ends up being left on the wall of the cylinder. And so when the detonation happens inside the cylinder, you've actually got the fuel burning in there, you're also burning that oil. Now, the smoke that comes out when that happens tends to be much bluer and, as Mike says, has quite an acrid smell. And the reason it does that is because lubricating oil has a very different hydrocarbon profile than diesel oil or petrol. And when I say hydrocarbon profile, if you were to line up the, the chains, the hydrocarbons, next to each other and have a look at how long they were, the kind of oil that you, or the kind of hydrocarbons you put in lubricating oil, tend to be much bigger, heavier, longer chains for a start and there are other chemicals in there as well oil also contains what we call emulsifiers these are the same things actually you find in your mayonnaise and they are there to absorb water because when fuel burns it produces not just a lot of heat but carbon dioxide and water and some of that water makes its way into the engine and if it was just allowed to build up in the engine all the water would collect and the oil would collect separately 
you'd end up with the oil floating on top of the water and mm. it wouldn't be very good for your engine. So the oil manufacturers put these emulsifiers into their oil so the engine oil, over the time the engine's running, slowly absorbs the water that makes its way inside the engine. And that's why old oil has a very different slimy, sometimes almost looks like egg characteristic. Yeah. Um, because it's absorbed all this water. And in fact, the amount of water in the oil can go up to maybe 30% in some cases in, in a very badly aged em engine or one that hasn't had its oil changed in a long time. And those emulsifier molecules also are going to produce other kinds of combustion products when they burn because they're not really present at the same amount in petrol or diesel. All right, let's take a break. I have a question when we return about car motion sickness. Stay with us. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. All right, and we're taking your calls. Ruth, I think you have a question about GMOs and eggs. Good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Hello. Mm. I'm interested to know, is there recent research to, to corroborate the theory that genes in genetically modified food or the genetic material in genetically modified food can affect the eggs? in the future offspring of a person who eats that food? Ooh, that's a hard one. I don't think there's any evidence that that is the case, fortunately. I think I can reassure you there. Um, there, there let's first of all talk about what's going on here. So if we have, say, a plant, and we put a gene into that plant that means that it can grow better in salty soil, for example. So we make some plant products, and then we eat the plant. Then when you eat the plant then all of the cells in the plant that you are eating, say you eat the plant fresh, we'll assume you're not cooking it, then it will be ground up in your mouth, go down into your stomach, and stomach acid will attack all of that material, as well as all of your digestive enzymes, and most of it will get chopped up. And when it goes into your small intestine, it will be broken up chemically, and there won't really be any DNA, at least in intact fragments, being absorbed into the person's body for a start. And the only exception to this that I can think of is that there was a paper published in the journal Nature, and it was in 2010, and it was by a group of researchers who were looking at seawater. And they found a group of genes in some seawater samples which break down sugars called porphyrans. These sugars are made by seaweed. And so they were about to publish this little module of genes, like a little link sequence of genes, which could break down this thing, because they thought they were new. And then they had a look in the big DNA database for the world, and they found that someone else had published some of these things before. But what seemed weird is that when they looked at where these things had been published, they'd been described in humans. And they thought, why would humans have genes to break down seaweed? And then they looked a bit more closely, and they found that the people who'd done this work were in Japan, and then they realised, or a bit more probing, what was going on was that the people who had uh, taken part in this study, the samples in the DNA database were from bacteria in the people's gut. And those bacteria, although they were human bacteria, those humans had been eating sushi, and because sushi's got a lot of seaweed in it, bacteria from the sea that had these genes in them had been eaten by these people gone down into their digestive tract and their own bacteria in the gut had picked up these genes by breaking down or getting the genes off of the bacteria that were in the seaweed 
and because those genes were useful, because it would enable the bacteria to break down seaweed and get more energy out of that person's diet, the bacteria had incorporated those genes. But those were seaweed or plant genes and they weren't going into the person, they were going into the bugs that live in their genes and they were coming to those bugs from other bugs, which is a much more safe and natural way for gene flow to occur. We would kind of expect that, we just hadn't detected it before. But there's no evidence that at the moment these genetically modified foods can damage a person's germline, get into the eggs and sperm, which will affect their offspring. Thank you very much, Ruth. Thanks indeed. Nikki in Athol, hi. Hi, good day to you. I'm very curious to know how pills that you take for various conditions, how the body knows what to do with them, considering that you've got all those gastric juices that chew up everything. Hello, Nikki. Yes, um, very interesting question. So I take a headache pill. Mm -hmm. uh, it goes into my stomach but it somehow knows that I have a headache. How does it know to put my headache right and to go there in my body? The answer is it doesn't. When scientists called pharmacologists make drugs and medicines, they're making a molecule which gets into your body and can bypass the breakdown process in the gut to an appreciable amount so it can get into your body, be absorbed. It then goes round in the bloodstream and is distributed equally to pretty much all tissues according to where the blood goes. So wherever blood visits, which means pretty much every tissue in your body, the drug will be delivered to that part of the body. But the drugs only work on cells that have some kind of sensitivity to those drugs. The drug usually is binding or, or locking onto some kind of target. That target is usually a, a complementary shape or structure to the drug. To put that in a simpler term, a hand fits into a glove because a glove is the right shape for the, hands and f for the hand and fingers. Uh, a hand would not fit so well into a shoe. So even though I might shove my hand into lots of places, it would fit most comfortably into the gloves. It's the same with these drugs. They're going to go around the body, and where there are molecules that are the right shape for them to bind onto, they bind onto them. Now, if you've got a headache, the reason you have a headache is because your body has made around your head some inflammatory chemicals, and those inflammatory chemicals are making the pain. The drug molecules recognise the inflammatory chemicals, bind to them and either stop them being made or reduce their amount. And so even though the drug molecules are going to everywhere in your body, they're actually only having a physical manifestation where it hurts because the things that they're targeting are only being made where it hurts and therefore you hit pain where it hurts. Thank you very much, uh, Nikki. That's a very, very interesting question indeed. Fatima in Lodium, hi. Hi, I'd like to know, is there a link between high levels of metals in our body and behavioral problems or disorders? Hello, Fatima. The answer is yes, definitely. And the evidence for this is, is quite well understood for things like lead. Lead is heavy metal, and in the past we used to be exposed in the environment to much higher levels of lead, and now, thanks to controls being put in in many countries, lead has been removed from most of the places it was found. It was found in paints. It was also found in very high levels, in, relatively speaking, in fuels, because lead is a soft metal, so it had a lubricating effect in engines, and you could lubricate valve seats with it, for example. So it was a good thing to put into the fuel, but then, of course, it came out into the air and was in the environment, and people were breathing that in. It then was going into the nervous system, and it was causing... Um, 
developmental problems in little babies and potentially behavioural problems in adults. And there was a very interesting paper published at the end of last year and a group of researchers in the States showed that if you look at the levels of lead which were in the air in any part of the world and then look at the crime rates 20 years later, there's a really strong correlation. In other words, they're arguing that there's an association between lead in the air and subsequent crime, which we can ascribe wow. to a degree of behavioural problems. Now, people have critiqued this and said, well, you know, can you control for the fact that if there's a lot of lead, that might be a very industrial area, it might be, therefore, more deprivation in this area, and therefore there's more risk of crime. But when they take this into account and control for that, in other words, you, you do careful statistics to take that into account, there's still a very strong effect. So it looks like lead, for a start, really does affect behaviour. There are lots of other metals that behave a bit like lead, but which may be... Uh, less well understood, but certainly also can have similar effects on the nervous system. Thanks, Fatima. Here's an SMS here. Um, Chris, what causes car motion sickness and what can you do to prevent it? Oh, really hard one, that, because we just don't understand why it happens. You've got your vestibular system, which is your balance organ in your ears, being stimulated or upset in some way by the movement of the car and your body's solution logically enough is to throw up i mean we just don't understand this why should it make you feel sick it appears to be some kind of disparity in the brain between what the eyes are saying is going on and what your vestibular system says is going on so one part of your body says it's moving your eyes fixing on the environment outside say no the environment is not moving in this way and that that sort of disagreement between the two in some susceptible people seems to make people feel intensely sick. Exactly why that is, I don't think people really know. You can deal with it, though, using drugs, which can make it a bit better. Antihistamines, like cyclizine, for example, gets into the brain quite effectively, but is not sedating. That seems to help. And also uh, some of these... Um, anti-muscarinic drugs as well. There's some other anti-muscarinic drugs that can also uh, help to settle things down a little bit in susceptible people. But it is a real pain and we really don't understand it properly. All right, Chris, thank you so very much for talking to us this week and we'll speak to you again next week. Oh, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Thank Reedy. you. Have Take a lovely week. And we look everyone. forward to having you in South Africa next month. I understand you're coming uh, through. Yeah, we're coming. We're coming over. I let the, the cat out of the yeah. bag. I'm so excited. We're going to have oh, a live show with you this. and uh, get an audience in. I think it's going to be great. Thanks, Chris pleasure. See you really. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Yes, you heard it from me, the Naked Scientist in South Africa next month, and he will be at the Rand Easter show, so we're taking advantage of that. Why not have him downstairs? Okay, we're not on TV. I can't just say downstairs. No, there are no cameras. So downstairs is where we usually have our staff meetings, our roundtable discussions, and uh, who knows, maybe some of you will be lucky enough to be part of the audience, and you can ask your questions live. Would you like that? I think you would.